You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and I am very excited to welcome you to a brand new season. For the next 10 episodes, we're going inside the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Now, I love museums. I'm a museum nut. When I'm on vacation, I will spend hours and hours and hours dragging my wife through museums, you know, wherever we are in the world. But at the same time, they are also sort of mysterious institutions to me. I mean, how does a $100 million piece of canvas end up on a wall so that a bunch of people can just come by and take selfies with it every day? I I don't know. I don't know how that piece of canvas ends up there. Or at least I didn't really have an idea until uh, I started doing these interviews with the folks at MoMA. The museum very generously, you know, set me up with curators and exhibition designers and, you know, a security guard so I could get a sense of how the institution runs and just how it all comes together. This is going to be a series for people who like art, who like museums, who, you know, you go to the Metropolitan in New York, you go to Louvre when you're on vacation in Paris, you go to MoMA to go look at Starry Night, but aren't necessarily an obsessive or an expert. You're not reading art forum or checking out auction results. This is a series for people who like looking at paintings and photography. Some of the people we talk to, like I said, are going to have jobs that you definitely think of when you hear the word museum, like a curator or a security guard. And some of them are going to be people with jobs you've never, ever heard of, like Paul Galloway, who I am talking to in today's episode. Paul is a collection specialist at MoMA. What is a collection specialist? I'm not going to spend too much time explaining that. I'm going to let him explain that. But for now, just sort of think of him as the nerve center of his department. We're going to go from there. I hope you enjoy. What's your name and what do you do? My name is Paul Galloway. I'm the collection specialist for the Department of Architecture and Design at MoMA. Okay, so before I ask you to describe that in a little bit more detail, what that, what that actually means, I just want to tell the listeners that Paul has shown up here with a long list of talking points about <laughs> what's involved in his job, which is actually the first time I've ever seen a guest do this. No one before has ever walked in just like, okay, I've got seven points about right. how I'm going to describe my work, which... It tells me either something about your personality <laughs> or something about the job you do. So what exactly is a collection specialist? All right. So in my defense, it's also to just sort of uh, when people ask me what my job is, I often go a little glassy eyed and try to remember, All right, wait, what do I do? Uh, because <laughs> it can feel like really opposite things happening one minute after the other. Uh, but a, a collection specialist at MoMA, very broadly speaking, is the knowledge keeper, the access point, the kind of overall steward of the knowledge and information about the collection. Uh, so in architecture and design, my responsibility in- includes everything from acquisitions, conservation, cataloging. I support exhibition research, framing loans, uh, research. Um, I lecture. I serve on juries. Uh and so it can it, it can really feel like those duties are really all over the place, which is why I have to write them down. Yeah. So that I can <laughs> straight. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. 
Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. <laughs> so I feel like a lot of this episode might turn into me trying to find a metaphor to kind of wrap all that together. Good if that's even, <laughs> even possible. But so what you're describing there sounds a little bit like a little bit of like a database, like a human database. Sort of. But and also you're the like and you're the caretaker. You're the gardener for the for this collection. I like you know? to think of myself as a shaman. A shaman. Yes. <laughs> it's a little bit of Okay, I'll give it. A little bit of a database, <laughs> a little bit of a shaman. Okay, so I, I think in order to understand your job, we're first gonna have to know what this collection is, right? Like yeah. you know, most museums don't have an architecture and design. Uh, department. So what is that at MoMA? Yeah, there's there's only a handful in the United States that have them. Ours is the largest of these collections, and it's pretty broad. So architecture is a broad field, and design is an extremely broad field. So we have everything from drawings, architecture. Tip, for architecture, we have everything but the building itself, right? So we have drawings, photographs, models, digital files, CAD drawings. For design, it gets even more kind of all over the place. We have a helicopter, we have cars, we have an ice cream cone, we have graphic design posters, uh, printed ephemera. We've got software works, video games. We've got the original Docomo emoji. We've even got performance work. We have two works of performance architecture. Performance architecture? Yeah. There there were multiple points in that list where I was like, wait, what? Huh? Wait, you have an ice cream cone. We have an ice cream cone. Is so, it like in storage? Just like It is. Uh, we smushed the one a few years ago, so I had to go and replace it. Um, <laughs> we, luckily, Ben and Jerry's at Rockefeller Center makes really good ice cream cones. So I went down there and I purchased one. And I really wanted to change the credit line for the word gift of Paul Galloway because I spent 50 cents on this ice cream cone. Fun fact, if you go to Ben and Jerry's, you can ask for just the ice cream cone and they will sell it to you for 50 cents. Important information if you're starting if, a collection. If, if you, or if you just are really into the cone and not the ice cream. Okay, so er, you've got everything from like digital files to models of buildings yeah. to, you said emoji. Yeah, including you, the uh, original emoji that were released in 1999 in Japan. And that's, is that a digital file? Is that like drawings? Mm-hmm. What is that? It's digital files, uh, essentially the uh, image files that were used on the, the cell phones at the time. Interesting. And so it, it, when you're storing that as a museum, you're not storing the only copy of those files in the world. You're storing, or are you? We're storing a copy. A right? copy. It's, it's the same way if you have a photo collection. Odds are you don't have the only copy of a photo by Man Ray or there's other other copies of. But you're storing your copy and you're committing to taking care of that copy. You know, everybody else's copies could get blown up and then you are the source of record for these things. And then you, but then you're also storing cars as well in your collection. We have cars, motorcycles, bicycles, surfboards. Where does all this storage happen for a moment? Like, is there just a giant warehouse somewhere? Where where do you keep it all? And is it all together? Yeah, it's all together. Uh, the museum has storage on site at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. We also have a facility out in Long Island City 
slash Sunnyside, kind of depending on where you drive the border, that's called MoMA Queens. During the expansion in the early 2000s, they relocated uh, the museum while they were expanding in the Taniguchi expansion. So that facility was MoMA for a couple of years. And that has now been repurposed as exclusively a storage and research facility. And and I guess this is kind of the context that anybody would need to understand this. But, you know, what you see at a museum, it's a little bit of an iceberg, right? Like you're only seeing a a little piece of the collection that's there. Yes. And the rest of it is in these storage centers. And that's where you have to be. That's where you come in. Yeah. It's what you see on the wall is what we can have the uh, space available to share with the public at that any any one time. But that should always be seen as a story that it's being told by the curators at that moment. There's thousands of stories that can be told with what's in uh, in storage behind. So it's it's interesting that we're limited as to how much we can have out at any one moment, but we're still caretakers of everything else, um, and there's still that potential for stories. And MoMA has also has a very active outgoing loan program. We loan, lend uh, hundreds and hundreds of works every year to other museums. We partner with other museums to do stuff with our collection. So even though quite a lot is in storage, that's still a pretty active uh, amount. That stuff has a life, and it's used. So to some extent, you're an archivist is another way of thinking about it. In one way. In one way to just, again, to try and simplify this job. But you said you also play a role in actually acquiring this stuff. Yeah. So did you play a role in acquiring the emoji? I did. Okay, that seems like a good example. So take me through, where, where, how did you acquire the emoji? So the project started with Michelle Millar-Fisher and Paola Antonelli. Paola is our senior curator of design, uh, trying to think of some more humble masterpieces. Paola did a very influential show in the early 2000s called Humble Masterpieces that tried to look at some of the greatest example of design that happened in a very simple manner, like that little uh, pencil that you have there. He's got one of the classic yellow wooden pencils or the post-it note, which seems like just a piece of paper, but actually 3M engineering, that kind of sticky stuff that releases was a real feat of engineering. So this exhibition she did was meant to kind of call attention to objects that we often take for granted, but actually have a very rich design process behind them. So they, Michelle and Paolo were trying to uh, rethink this process and came up with one of them being the emoji. So I started uh, working with them on this process and we figured out where emoji came from. It was a really interesting thing to research and learn. So they, they were originally released by a company called NTT Docomo, which is kind of the Verizon wireless of uh, Japan. It's gigantic telecom. So the process is I send an email into the ether saying, hey, we want your stuff. And then weeks go by and then I say, hey, hey, you people. Uh, and they I finally get a response from a PR person. They're like, what are you talking about? I was going to say, when, when you send an email saying I'm from MoMA and I want to add your, your piece or your work to my collection, do you- do you usually get a response? We usually get a response. Thankfully, being a pretty well-known museum does open some doors. Yeah. But when you're talking, to, and this is the same thing that we encountered when we acquired video games. You email Nintendo or Sony and say you want to do this. And their first response, or Docomo, their first response is always, what do you want to do? What? They're, that's confusion, right? Yeah, I, I, mean, I guess the question is like, why do you want, why do you want a copy of our game why do you want a copy of our of our emoji right especially when something is uh, vastly obsolete right you're talking about emoji from 1999 nobody's using these things anymore they have no monetary value to the company uh, or what the same could be said of sony when we're trying to acquire a game from the late 90s that has no monetary value anymore so you're talking you're trying to help them 
think of something as having cultural value that they're only used to framing in a monetary sense, right? So it, it, it often takes a while to sort of twist their brains around. You're essentially convincing them, right? Yeah. That, to take their own work seriously. These things, especially in the digital world, these things have a lifespan. They, they put them out and then they're already on to the next thing, right? The thing is, and as long as it's still making them money, they're going to pay attention to it. But the moment it's no longer making money, it's forgotten. Well, let me ask the philosophical question. Why does it matter? Why should they? Why does it matter if, if MoMA has a copy of the file in their warehouse on their server somewhere? The, the, or are you storing it as, as a digital file? Is there a, is there a thumb drive somewhere? Is it's, it, it's a digital file. Yeah. So, so why, why does it matter if MoMA has that file? Why does it matter if we have any artwork? The point of a museum is to highlight certain cultural products that are worthy of great attention, right? So it's our job to say, look at this Cezanne or look at this work by Frank Lloyd Wright. These are really great monuments and achievements in human history. And we should be aware of the creativity that's going on around us. Part of the mission of uh, an architecture and a design department is to bring forward things that we really take for granted. Things we use, chairs, buildings, are the most invisible of all, right? We just use them. We don't stop and actually look at them. So that takes even more work to make people focus on and look at. And we found that the story of how emoji, which are now so embedded in our lives, had a really fascinating origin story that we just felt the world should know so they, they can kind of think more critically about these things. And I guess to, to a large extent, putting that file on your server or putting that ice cream cone in, in your warehouse is making the statement. That's, that's real. It's the action of doing it. That's yes. you're saying it's you're curating. You're, you're, you guys are, you're saying, okay, this is, and that, that you're, you're putting your stamp of approval or whatnot. On yeah. It. It's, it's really trying by using our loud megaphone, because we, we do have a loud voice and a very prominent voice. We can call attention to things that, say, if a smaller nonprofit or a smaller institution just couldn't get as much attention on these things as we can. So you send the email and you, you get a baffled response and yeah. then you start trying to explain to them what you just explained to me. Yeah. What, what do you do next? How, how did the process unfold? Well, so it was both talking to Docomo and also talking to the original creator, Shigetaka Kurita, who was the designer working at Docomo in the 90s when they were trying to create the system called iMode, which was really the first mobile internet on a cell phone in the late 90s in Japan. They were way ahead of us in terms of cell phones, as I'm sure you know. So Shigetaka was helpful. The people at Docomo were actually, once we finally got them to think about what we were trying to do, they were really on board. And then it just became a question of what does it mean for MoMA to own these things, right? And which gets into some really interesting legal entanglements and what does it mean to own a digital file or intellectual property and then international law, how it applies to that all gets really fascinating for anybody who's interested in law and for everybody else, they're probably eyes are glazing over right now. Well, no, I mean, I, I, can I, I don't know if it's possible to give a elevator pitch version, but what sure. does it mean for MoMA to own that file? It means we have the right to use the file within the walls of the museum. We can show it however we choose and uh, we can print it, we can blow it up, we can show it on screens, we can use the works as the curators decide, right? So there's no real restrictions on how these things are used. And most crucially, they can never be taken away from us. So in the same way that you do, if there's a, a pre-war painting 
from Germany, you're going to do very clear provenance research to make sure there's no like uh, questionable ownership history because you can't bring something into the museum if there's a chance that it could be taken away. The same holds true with digital artifacts. So if it's a video game made by Sony or if it's these emoji, they need to come in and we need to know that they can never be taken away. And it's, what's interesting is that you could make a fair use claim right under U.S. copyright law to do a lot of these things. But if, there, if you get into copyright law long enough, you'll quickly find out that the United States system is really idiotic and not well <laughs> tailored to digital ownership of things, right? So by creating a kind of uh, one-to-one arrangement with these companies, you get very clear what the museum can do with it. And it doesn't matter what copyright law does. Copyright law can change. It can get better. It can get worse. But it, all of that's irrelevant because we have a very clear arrangement um, and agreement with these companies. So when the museum and the company are working out this kind of arrangement, what's your role in all of that at that point? What are you doing? I'm uh, trying to make lawyers happy, um, <laughs> which is I'm trying to make the MoMA lawyers happy. And I'm trying to make the IP lawyers at uh, big tech companies happy too. At this point, I could have a second career in making lawyers feel warm and fuzzy about what they do. <laughs> so are you sort of acting as almost like a negotiator? Is that... A, yeah. And yeah. you're going back and forth between them? Yeah. And, it, and it's really both trying to understand the legal concerns of all parties, both our side and the other side, but also trying to keep the discussion on the kind of what the museum is trying to do with these things and to continue to frame the debate and the negotiations in a, in a realm that will give the museum the most latitude and the most freedom and, and will really give us the best tools to honor the creators of these things and to tell the story well. Do you have any kind of a law background? or I have zero law background. Okay, because that, that's interesting because it seems like a, a lot of what you're doing is negotiating over legal rights. It's fun to learn on the job. <laughs> it's, uh, well, can I ask, what was your background? How did you get into, into this? My background is actually in fine art, in uh, drawing and painting, art history. I had no background at all in architecture or design. Or contract negotiation. Or contract negotiation. No, <laughs> no. Is that common? Is that how people usually end up in collection specialist role? Uh, it's It really varies. So there's a collection specialist for each department at the museum, and our roles do vary quite a lot. And that has to do with the nature of our collection. My colleague in photography, Tasha, is dealing with photographic prints and digital files and things like that as well. That's a very different kind of uh, set of responsibilities and needs than, say, I have or the colleague in film, Ashley. So it's really, there is no, like, one clear or is the path to this. Is the is your colleague who deals with photographic prints thinking more about like storage issues and preventing it from the the you know prints from yellowing kind of thing? Or? Yeah, there's there's conservation issues, there's acquisition issues, yeah. loans and exhibitions. Right? Yeah. We're, we're called in as support uh, yeah. for exhibitions and research. So it's, uh, I mean, Tasha is a walking dictionary for all things photography at the museum. Now we, we were talking about you dealing with the emoji. Mm-hmm. Let's come back to the ice cream cone. Yeah. Does that have all the same legal rigmarole surrounding it? Too? No, or do you uh, just buy the ice cream cone and put that in the? That's the in nice the thing about physical objects. When you have it, you have it. Right? Okay. So when we acquire things, I often love it when we just get a drawing because then it's like, okay, I've got this piece of paper. Here's a drawing done. <laughs> Write the accession number on the back. Put it in storage, and that's simplifying. There are actually a lot of concerns for those things. So with the ice cream cone, this was part of the humble masterpieces show, and it included, as I said, post-it notes, 
Band-Aids, M&Ms, sugar cubes, and the ice cream cone, which is, as you can imagine, you take an ice cream cone and stick it in storage for a few years. It's going to get kind of brittle. So we went to go check on the storage because we periodically check on these things, and it had been smooshed inside. It's very carefully packed with Tyvek and uh, tissue paper. and But as ice cream cones will do when they get seven years old, it, it got smooshed. So we needed a replacement. Did so. you, how did you pick the specific cone? And what, what kind of cone was it? Is it a sugar cone or a waffle cone? It's a or? waffle cone because, all right, so the idea is that the waffle cone is actually one of those design objects whose history is kind of invisible. We all just sort of accept it. It's an innovation by Sergio Marchione in uh, the, I think it's the late 19th century, right? The kind of famous story. He runs out of cups and bowls for his ice cream. There's a waffle, Dutch waffle maker nearby. He takes, I'm probably mangling this story, by the way. He takes one and twists it into a corner and like in an emergency, he's like, well, damn it, I'll just stick some ice cream in this thing. Ta-da, turns into a brilliant invention. So we have found in our research that the closest equivalent currently being made to Marcione's ice cream cone is that made by Ben & Jerry's. Oh, interesting. Yeah. They're keeping the tradition alive. They're keeping the tradition alive. It's an extremely uh, close to the original idea. And so your job is to make sure that you can go, you can get it, put it in storage, and that I mean, if I, it gets I, smushed, you, I, have, you can, you can re-up. I did a little beauty pageant thing. So we laid out like 10 cones. Um, the people behind me in line were real thrilled with this. And I was like, hmm, I don't know, cone number A, because it's got a little bit of malformed bottom. I'm going to go with <laughs> cone number C. Did you explain this to the people in line? <laughs> yeah, they thought it was hilarious. That's, this is why <laughs> the Ben and Jerry's people thought this was really fun. So, Yeah, I mean, I, it's better than another scoop, I guess. Or, yeah, yeah right? right. Or it's more interesting. So you've got this really vast and varied collection that you're overseeing, that you're shamaning. <laughs> so I guess you, you also have to be an expert on actually how to store this stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, we, I, I work with a preparator uh, named Pamela Popeson, who's, uh, her duties tend more toward dealing with the physical nature of the things, how to store them properly, okay. how to handle them. I tend to be more the knowledge and the thoughts, the shaman, and she's... okay. The, so she's actually, you've got someone whose job it is just to make sure that the car is not scratched, that the ice cream cone is not smushed, that the yeah. the, the, that the the designs for the building are yeah. all, you know, kept in perpetuity. Yeah. And then your job is to know how, I guess, that's all being handled and know what's going on and how to get it. Yeah. So it, we really kind of work in tandem on those kind of collection care needs. So you've got the, the collection care stuff, which you work with, you mm-hmm. know, partner on, you've got the acquisition stuff. And then like, what's the, what are the other big buckets again? Uh, loans. Okay. So we have a very rich outgoing loan program, both exhibitions generated by other museums that they want to borrow something from us. And also exhibitions kind of generated in partnership with MoMA. We did two very large ones in the last year and a half or so. We did one in Australia last year and also one at Fondation Louis Vuitton in Paris, both of which took very large amounts of MoMA artworks to these places. And in some cases uh, involved really complex projects like at, uh, in Paris at the Louis Vuitton Foundation, we, for the first time, installed a artwork that we acquired in 2015, which was a very large chunk of the original facade curtain wall of the UN Secretariat building. Okay. So uh, 13 feet high and 12 feet wide, massive. The original like aluminum and steel and glass skin of the building because they had to completely replace the curtain wall on the secretariat. And we had it. You've just had that sitting in your warehouse. Since 2015, yeah. So it's... Where do you... Like, how do you... How do you keep that thing? Uh, very carefully, because <laughs> uh, some of the glass is very fragile. But the the bigger question was not so much how do we keep it, it's how do we show it, right? Yeah. Because this thing, 
is the skin of a building, but it doesn't stand up on its own, right? It's the skin of a building. It hangs onto a building. So we had to essentially create a kind of structure that can hang this thing so that people could see it. And that involved working with architects and engineers trying to figure this out. So that was, so as I, when I say something like an outgoing loan, that's not just here's this drawing. It's often, all right, here we have these pieces of the United Nations building. How do we show them? And uh, so it, it can be, even a loan can still be a very involved process. So again, tell me like when you were figuring that out, what were you personally doing? Were you going back and forth between an architect who is you know, coming up with the designs or what was what was your role there? So my role was the kind of project manager. So I was working with our curators, our chief curator, Martino Steerly and Sean Anderson, another curator, Barry Bergdahl, our former chief curator, and the engineering firm that redid uh, the curtain wall, which was Heinches and Associates, a very big curtain wall engineering firm in New York, to kind of frame the debate as to how what is it we want this object to tell right this is a piece of a building how do we want to show this to people that will give them the clearest uh, understanding of what it meant to be a curtain wall the un secretary by the way was the first curtain wall building uh, skyscraper in the united states so it's really kind of sitting in between all of these different parties uh, metal fabricators engineers architects curators to kind of bring the project to fruition to it to an end that best speaks to and represents the ideas behind it. When you are loaning artwork, is it typically another institution comes to you and says, we know you have this in your collection, we would love to show it ourselves, or there's there's some traveling show, or is it you proposing something to them? So MoMA generally is the recipient of these things. Some museums are in the business of putting together big shows and then kind of selling them to other institutions. MoMA doesn't really do that so much. Which museums sort of do that? Uh, The Victorian Albert Museum in London has a long history of putting together incredible exhibitions that are meant to be toured and go around. Vitra Design Museum, which is in Germany. There's And then other museums pay for the rights to to show that exhibition. Yeah. So you're you're typically getting requests from other institutions. We're getting the requests. The the two exhibitions we did recently in Australia and in Paris were kind of jointly organized between us and these borrowing institutions. So that was a, a little bit in between the two. It's not exactly them coming to us and it's not exactly us generating it. It was sort of done together with these institutions. And I assume you're the one who's fielding a lot of those requests? Or? I mean, I'm fielding all of them. You're fielding all of the requests. So what typically are other institutions asking for from your guys? Uh, well, it's interesting because you can imagine if uh, you were to talk to my colleague Lily Goldberg in Painting and Sculpture, she probably gets a request for uh, Demoiselle d'Avignon or Starry Night like every five minutes. Right? Does, and does course- that request ever get granted? Uh, no. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Although I think Starry Night did go out because we organized, co-organized a Van Gogh show maybe 10 years ago with the Van Gogh Museum. Okay. And so they gave us a lot of their great stuff to do a show here. And then in return, we had to give them some great stuff to do the show there. That's the only time I can think of. Lily would know if there's other times that thing's ever walked out the door. Um, but there's definitely a lot of works that it's like absolutely no way. And oftentimes that's because of conservation concerns. If we're really concerned if this thing gets moved and when you travel in artwork, it's a lot of danger, right? But Planes go down. <laughs> it's Yeah, I guess there's not much. There's nothing you can do at that point. No. It's, it's, it's a fiery wreck. 
that you can get another ice cream coming. They that's can get, what, uh, that's that, not another Starry Night. No. But for your collection, the, yeah. the architecture and design, w- what typically are other institutions asking for? So it's it tends to be things that are unique to us, right? One of the things in a design collection is you have things that there's other copies of those objects, right? But there's several things that are very unique to uh, MoMA's collection. And the two biggest ones are the archives that we are in charge of. So we have the archive of Frank Lloyd Wright, which we co- co-own and co-care for with the Avery Architectural Library at Columbia University. So we get a lot of requests for Frank Lloyd Wright stuff. And we also have the archive of Mies van der Rohe, the great German-American architect. So those two get probably the bulk of all of our loan requests. Because if you want to do a show on Mies van der Rohe or Frank Lloyd Wright, there's nowhere else to go but to MoMA. So how do you assess a request from an institution? What are you looking for when they're asking about it? Well, we're looking for, is this a serious exhibition? Is this one that actually does something for the the kind of... Our, our mission is to support scholarship and a public understanding of these architects and to celebrate critical thinking of them. So is this exhibition furthering that aim? Or Mm -hmm. is it just some puff piece that somebody wants to put inside their hotel or something like that? So is it a serious exhibition with serious scholarship? Is it going to get a good amount of viewership? Um, Probably not going to lend to a museum in a very rural environment that nobody's going to go to, right? Is this going to actually get some traction? And then also, are the artworks safe to travel? And that's not to say that we only lend to big, famous museums. We did a great loan to a Mies exhibition this past spring at the McCormick Art Museum in Elmhurst, Illinois. Not a huge, well-known museum, but they did a fantastic exhibition. So it was one we wanted to support. So it's really trying to gauge the quality of the exhibition, the quality of the request, the quality of the institution. Is this a safe place? Are they just like a shed somewhere in Long Island City? Is it going to burn down? Is it going to burn down? Uh, Is it a professional staff? Uh, There's many, many factors that go into it. Are you the one making that decision on your own or are you working with other people on staff to make that call? So it's, I'm, again, the kind of node that everything comes. So I liaise with colleagues in our registrar's department, uh, colleagues in the conservation department, our chief curator, our senior curator. It's really all of these voices come together to make this decision. Yeah. And so you all, you huddle in your side. Yeah. And then you you have to send the email back. And then I'm the one that either gets to give the happy news or to break some hearts. Yeah, That's that's really interesting to me, though. So you're the person who a lot of the smaller museums around America are basically coming to and asking, we would really like to show this. Yeah. And you have to be you're responsible for getting everyone together to make that decision and, and being a little bit the gatekeeper. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Okay, another thing. So shaman, gatekeeper, archivist. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really a collection specialist is kind of the person behind the scenes, Yeah, right? The, the curators are the public face of the department. They're the ones creating these exhibitions, proposing works for acquisitions, and we're the ones making it actually happen. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't a design person when you came into this no. role. What drew you into the art world in the first place? I've always been interested in art. I used to be an artist myself. I've been fascinated by art since I was a little kid. Uh, I grew up mostly in Oklahoma and Texas. And when I was, I think, 10 years old, we moved to Fort Worth, which has a jewel box of a museum called the Kimball Art Museum, which happens to also be an architectural masterpiece. It's Louis Kahn's beautiful, beautiful building. And it's kind of like the Frick. So you know how the Frick has a small collection, but it is just one incredible artwork after the other, like a really great Goya, a really great Holbein, and over and over. And the Kimball's collection is kind of like that too. It's small, but really chock-a-block with fantastic stuff. For for people who are not familiar, the Frick Gallery in, in New York is also in this 
beautiful old robber baron mansion. Yeah. Pretty much the only good thing this man did in his life was leave this mansion behind yeah. to turn it to a fabulous museum. And he raided Europe for some amazing artworks. Right there. Well well done. He, he also he survived being shot by socialists at one point, just to give you a sense of how how awful a robber baron he was. Oh, right. But anyway, we've forgotten all that. It's a great <laughs> museum. So, that, so you had a kind of a collection like that, and that was what kind of inspired you when you were younger. Yeah, and I think it was, uh, and the, the, I was always interested in architecture because of that building and it sat across a garden from a philip johnson building as well the amon carter um so architecture was always a really big part of seeing these artworks um if you ever go to the kimball you'll very clearly see what i'm talking about the galleries are very specifically designed with these kind of raised barrel vault roofs with this beautiful light diffusing system that comes down so you you are very aware of the architecture while at the same time the architecture kind of disappears in a really, really beautiful way. It's truly one of the great buildings in the United States. So I I think that sort of continued my interest in art. I studied art in college and also in graduate school. Um, and uh, my first job in an art museum was at the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, actually. So, mm-hmm. which is a Mies van der Rohe building. So I've it's like a, this is fate. Like it's fate. It, yeah. And at, at every point, <laughs> I was more interested in the fine arts. Yeah. But architecture kept rearing its head again and again at every place that I went to. So how would you say that doing this job has has kind of changed your view of the arts and, and museums? Like, what is has it changed the way you think about them? Uh, it has, because as an artist or an art history teacher, uh, you are really sort of on one side of the this big industry of cultural production right so you are an say a painter trying to get your painting sold or seen at a gallery or you're an art history teacher um and you're teaching students who may have no background in art so you're kind of out there in the world whereas in a museum it's very much about taking art in right and putting it in the storage facility or putting it on the wall and so it's this kind of opposite end of it and so in a way it's you're getting to see how the sausage is made, right? You're you're very aware of uh, how exhibitions are put together, that it's not some mysterious process, that there's actually a lot of intellectual rigor that goes behind that, why some artworks are acquired and others are not, um, that there's a lot of complicated reasons for these things. Uh, so it's it's been fascinating to really see it from this institutional perspective as opposed to a more on the ground perspective as b- of being a practicing artist or a practicing art teacher. You're the institution of a museum. It, you all been demystified because you're you're the one making it all work. Yeah, I think you see where institutions can be really great and where we have a really positive and compelling impact on the world, and also how museums can become unfortunately a little disconnected from the world and the. Uh, one of my own personal aims is to continue to force the museum to try to re-engage um, in my own small way, right? And yeah. how how can I continue this outreach to get the museum to engage with the world and engage with communities that it may not be com- engaging with as much as it should be? Is that because you're the person acting as sort of the, the face or you're, you're acting as the, in that gatekeeper role? Uh, talked about? Partly because of that, and also partly because there are certain fields that I've taken a particular interest in, like video games is one I now I've I've lectured in San Francisco, I, at Gamescom in Cologne, kind of talking about how art museums want to move into this kind of cultural realm of video games and the kind of really fascinating uh, work that's being done in that field. So since you oversee this part of the collection, you sort of have 
sounds like you have a desire to evangelize it to some yeah. extent. Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's this is, again, something that started with Paula. She's like the fearless kind of blazer of trails. And it's one that I've been happy to sort of pick up and help with because it's it's one that I, I believe could be getting more attention and more focus. So you clearly have a, a love of architecture at this point. Yeah. Again, I, I don't think architecture is the first thing that comes to mind when people typically think about an art museum. So like what goes into an architecture collection? Like you, you, we've talked about sort of like, you know, designs, prints, but like what actually makes that up? I'll start with an anecdote, which is the greatest question anybody's ever asked me at the museum, because you'll be walking through the halls and somebody you've got your badge on and somebody will just ask you a question. Where's the bathrooms? Where do I get tickets for the films? And you, you know, we try to be good customer service providers and try to help them, um, even if you're busy and rushing to a meeting. But a lady stopped me and briefly was talking and she asked me because she's on my badge architecture and design she said where do you keep the architecture and that sort of blew my mind for a minute and i thought whoa man (laughs) where do we keep the architecture uh because she's right we don't have our architecture is buildings architecture is that one curtain wall we have that one we have pieces of buildings we have many pieces of buildings but we don't have the things themselves right so what we have is representations of buildings, right? So the drawings that were made, and I would say I would wager more than half of our architecture collection is of things that were never built, maybe even things that were never even meant to be built, right? It's sort of uh, conceptual pieces or visionary pieces. So really, if you're trying to make a representation of an idea, right? That's what ultimately whether it's a drawing or a photograph or a computer rendering or something, it's really a representation of an idea, right? And it's it's about helping the viewer kind of en- envision this place that exists in time and space and movement in a, in a field, in a material, whether that's a drawing or a photograph or a model, that is necessarily uh, more limiting than the actual thing. Do you ever have ideas for things that you would like to see in a collection and like go to the curator or like try to put, like, it, I guess I, you obviously think about it all day long. Yeah. So I imagine there has, just has to be a point where like, well, if I were running this, I'd add, add this thing. Yeah, and I, I I do all the time. And sometimes they say, oh, that's a pretty good idea. And sometimes they say, what a, get out of here. <laughs> um, as they should. I mean, that's what their, that's what their job is. And I, I feel really fortunate to have worked with so many fantastic people at the museum. I mean, I, I often joke that I came to this position. I, I, did, I wasn't hired as a collection specialist. I was hired as a cataloger. But I What came, is a cataloger? Exactly? A cataloger is your job is basically just to take this uh, print and get who's the artist, what's the date, very basic cataloging information, exhibition history, provenance history, uh, and that kind of database stuff. So it's interesting. It's, is that kind of like an entry-level job at a museum? Um, it's an entry-level job in, say, a curatorial department. Okay. Um, but it was one that I was thrilled to get and was really happy but I came in with very little background in architecture and design, but I was really fortunate that my teachers in this world were Barry Bergdahl, our chief curator at the time, and Paola Antonelli, two of the greatest curators of this field in the world, right? So I have had the great privilege of having all these amazing people to work with. And I think that's really kind of led me to where I am now, where I feel comfortable actually going to them. And they encourage this kind of uh, give and take. Uh, all of them. Our current uh, chief curator is Martino Steerly, and he loves this kind of give and take of ideas. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, so we really all kind of bash these ideas around. So now that we, we I think we've started to get a, our arms around what your job actually is. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Begun, begun to. Uh, I know there's, I, we definitely haven't hit all the talking points. Yeah, I right. can see the list. But No, I'm just... I'll put it away. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean, how would you say you spend most of your time? 
What is what's taking up the majority of your day? Um, I'm sure you you are familiar with the scourge of email. Yes, <laughs> right. So, but like, which of the buckets are you emailing about all day? Well, often my buckets are uh, time zone based, right? Because okay. we do a lot of things with partners in Europe. So when I get in the first thing in the morning, it's who in Europe do I need to work? Because I want to try to get something on their day, right? So it's knock out anything that's happening there uh, with Europe, and then that's often the very first thing I do, right? When I get in, is mm-hmm. knock those out, and then so if there's like a loan at an exhibition there, you're dealing with Paris or whatever. I'm, yeah, I, I've I want to try to get that done on the soon side so that I stay kind of on top of those things, and then as soon as that's off my plate, then I'll get into the more kind of brain intensive things i'm one i'm a morning person so uh, if i need to write something because I, I write for catalogs or um, things that go online i like to do that in the morning because then i can close my internet browser put on headphones and open microsoft word and just write and try to get that done and then afternoon then it just becomes a uh, endless potpourri of meetings and um, as you're being that node where you're talking to people yeah. about whatever those various projects yeah are. I, of, I, I often think of the morning as my most productive time though. what is your favorite uh piece at moma what's your favorite piece of art architecture whatever that's a really hard question i think this is slightly biased but it's part of the building itself right because we have to the the building of the museum of modern art has kind of evolved and one might say metastasized over the years from <laughs> its originally it was in a townhouse and then it was the purpose built building in 1939 and then it expanded in the 50s and 60s and it's like we slowly mushroom out and keep growing into these different buildings but since the 50s, there's been this kind of axis behind the museum that I think is one of the most precious spots in New York City, and that's the Sculpture Garden, which was designed by Philip Johnson and pulls in influences from all over the place, but is, I think, maybe the place I return to again and again as a place to calm my brain down, to just walk through, to inhabit. Yeah, that, so I would say the Sculpture Garden. That is also my mother's favorite. She, she lived in the city for a good 20 or 40 years. And every time she comes back now, she uh, insists that we go to the sculpture garden to see Picasso's she-goat. Yeah. <laughs> She's a very popular lady. She right? just wants to go and say hi. Yeah, it's like an old friend. It's And it's, you know, the building itself or the garden itself might not seem like something in the collection, but we are still the stewards of this place, right? It, it's incumbent on us to take care of it. To uh, We've got colleagues that are really passionate about the kind of plants that go in there. Um, the trees that are in there got sick a few years ago, and I was really concerned about the trees, but they've, <laughs> they've recovered and they're doing great again. So it's, it's, I would probably say, yeah, the sculpture garden. All right, man. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Sure. That's it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. However, before I leave you, I need to tack on a little correction. You may have noticed that during our chat, Paul attributed the invention of the ice cream cone to Sergio Marchione. A few days after we talked, however, Paul emailed me very upset to say that he had misspoken and the actual inventor was Italo Marchione. Sergio is the former CEO of Fiat, and Paul mixed them up because he's been working on a car-related project recently these things happen. In any event, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, email me at working at slate.com. My producer I'm working is the absolutely indispensable Jessamine Molly. And as always, a special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. I'm Jordan Weissman. Come back and join me next time for more Working. Working.